This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Due to the amount of content and content creators that are out there, it's crucial that American soccer coaches, parents, and fans know that there are levels to interpreting and talking about the game. So if you want to properly interpret what's happening in the soccer landscape, whatever that means to you, you need to be able to discern what's accurate and good information and what isn't and why. Because reading or witnessing something and properly interpreting what you read or witnessed are two entirely different things. The way someone interprets and talks about the game can be influenced by a number of things, including education or type of involvement, but culture is oftentimes a leading factor. This is where American soccer media struggles, and by proxy, so does the general soccer public that consumes their media. So today, we are going to offer you some examples of what we mean by levels. We'll also offer you some solutions for how you can level up in discerning what's what, who's who, and how everything ties into the advancement or detriment of American soccer. Before we get started, here is a quick message about our online coaching program. When it comes to coaching education, being able to discern what will and won't help you can be a costly and confusing exercise. I know this because I've experienced it myself. It's frustrating. The internet is flooded with so much information. There are thousands of drills out there for you to watch. There are tons of things that you can try with your teams and with your players. But without context and without proper guidance from a legit mentor, you're not going to get the edge that you're looking for or the results that you want. That's what the 343 Premium Coaching Education Program gets right. It's rooted in the real experiences of coaching boys and girls soccer right here in America. As a coach, Brian Kleiben has faced the same issues like training just twice per week, kids missing practice, field congestion, pay to play, you name it. But by using the 343 framework and staying consistent with the methodology, he has been able to overcome the obstacles and produce college-level, professional, and international caliber players. What the 343 Coaching Program offers you is unlike anything else in the country because it cannot be replicated. It's not theory or speculation like you'd see in a presentation, and it's not staged and scripted like you'd get at a convention. This program is the work of a master practitioner, his real art, captured and delivered to you in its purest form to help you gain an advantage and become a better coach. The program features videos of Brian mic'd up during actual training sessions with his own players and teams as they prepare for their league games and tournaments. This is the only program in the country that gives you this type of authentic, behind-the-curtain look at player, team, and coach development. So if you're looking for just drills, well, we've got those, but more importantly, we have the mentorship, the proven results, and the community of ambitious coaches that you won't find anywhere else. To experience all of this, consider joining the 343 Premium Coaching Education Program. You can find all of the details at 343coaching.com. Levels. First things first, you need to know that there are levels. So we'll start with an example from a 2010 New York Times article. 
This began to circulate throughout the American soccer community because it highlighted the process of player development at Ajax, Holland's most successful club. As written by reporter Michael Sokolov, the following is a short excerpt from the article. Here it goes. The director of the Ajax Academy is Jan Old Reikerink, who spends much of his day walking around from field to field observing. He is always watching, like a spy. One Sunday in March, I was on the sideline of a game. Ajax's 15-year-olds matched up against the youth academy in another Dutch professional club. When I noticed that Jan was right behind me, he was by himself bundled into his parka and writing in a small notebook. With the Ajax boys up two goals and dominating the action, I told him that I was impressed by their skill. Really? He responded. To me, this is a disaster. End quote. And while everyone stateside was saying how amazing the article was, it seemed as though they missed the single most revealing insight of the whole thing, contained in that excerpt. The journalist was being impressed and the academy director thinking it was a disaster. It's an example of just how important context and a capacity for it really is. It's an example of the levels involved, levels of expertise within the profession and levels of discernment by people outside of the profession to be able to deduce who is amazing, who is mediocre, and who is straight up shit. But like all professions, there is a bell curve. To better illustrate this, we can go outside of the sport for a moment, and we'll use doctors as an example. On one end of the bell curve, you have absolutely amazing doctors. Doctors that just make you say, wow. And in the middle, there are mediocre doctors. They aren't bad, but they aren't amazing. And on the other end of the bell curve, there are doctors that are awful. The doctors that make you say, my God, how did you even become a doctor? So when it's time for you to find a good doctor, you certainly know that just because someone has a degree does not make them that amazing wow factor type of doctor. There are levels. The same can be said about every profession. Soccer and the coverage that the sport receives in America are no exception. But the reasons why might not be as obvious as you would think. The taxi driver. In 2016, I traveled to Barcelona to watch the Clásico. While I was there, Real Madrid beat Barcelona that night 2-1. The day after the game, I got in a cab with a driver that spoke almost no English. I speak barely any Spanish. But I was able to communicate that I had traveled from the United States just for the match. And he was able to communicate with me that he was a die-hard Real Madrid fan and that he was so happy that Real Madrid won. It ended up being a 10-minute ride full of enthusiastic conversation. There were a lot of hand gestures, which uh, sometimes had me worried because his hands were not on the wheel. But the ride ended up with a farewell and a sense of, we'll see who's better next time. The conversation with my taxi driver reminded me of something that I had heard before. It was a message that 343's founder, Gary Kleiben, had echoed for many years. And it was this. Taxi drivers in Argentina know more about the game than most coaches in America. And that's right. 
Get in a cab in Buenos Aires or Barcelona or Munich, and you'll get a more authentic football education in 20 minutes than you will in a 20-day course in Kansas City. Why is this? Well, for starters, these soccer-rich cultures around the world just casually and naturally speak about the game at a higher level compared to American soccer fans and coaches and media, primarily because it is indeed ingrained in their culture. A portion of people's very identity and self-esteem is hinged on their clubs and their national teams. Clubs and national teams across the world represent people at a social, political, economic, and cultural level. It is their flag. You might be familiar with FC Barcelona's crest and the small yellow and red design that is incorporated in it. What you might not know is that represents the region of Catalonia, and Barcelona's beautiful football is actually a vehicle for political advancement of the Catalonian message. Around the globe, every nook and cranny has something like this that represents them, whether it's a small country like Iceland or a big club like Barcelona. So, of course, people there are deeply invested and in tune with the sport because of the impact it may have on their cities, their countries, and to a greater extent, their very own livelihoods. In America, however, we do not have those same opportunities or deeply rooted connections to the sport across every inch of the country. Therefore, the conversation about soccer is typically dull. That's not to say we don't have hardcore soccer demographics in this country, because we do. In fact, we have nearly 60 million Hispanics in this country, resulting in millions of soccer-first households. One need not go much further than the viewership numbers of Liga MX, the Mexican Professional League, for verification. A 2014 article highlighted that Liga MX is the most watched club soccer league across all networks, regardless of language. Spanish networks also continue to compete with or beat English language networks when it comes to MLS viewership. Univision and its affiliates averaged nearly 50,000 more viewers than the ESPN family of networks in 2018. And that's just the Hispanic soccer first families tuning in. That's not even counting the millions of other immigrant families in this country that are also soccer first. Like myself, for example, who grew up with a Croatian father that had soccer pumping through his veins. But our country's soccer first households, which can also be aptly titled soccer rich households, are not welcome to participate in the mainstream of the sport here. My dad and his decades of soccer experience certainly wasn't welcomed in our soccer community the same way as other recreational parents and those parents with little to absolutely no knowledge of the sport. Instead, the hardcore soccer first cultures are forced to operate on the fringes, playing in Sunday leagues and other unaffiliated organizations. And those who have a level of understanding are ostracized, and the ones that are left over are the ones without the culture. Here's where we begin to see the crux of the issue. If the soccer first culture isn't welcomed and consequently isn't participating in American soccer, who is? Well, historically, it's been the non-soccer first demographic that everything is catered to. And that is who fills in the ranks from the boardroom to the locker room and all the way to the press room. 
Which brings us back to perhaps the largest source of your content consumption, specifically content that is created by mainstream American soccer media. And this is where you need to be careful because those are the ones that you might be reading and listening to. And being aware of this is only part of the solution. Another part of the solution is finding more culturally adept and independent outlets to be learning from. And I don't want you to worry because I feel your pain. I used to listen to the typical ESPN and Fox Soccer broadcasts, but at some point I really shifted to tuning into foreign-based media and interviews from overseas. And I reached a certain point of tuning out the media altogether and just watching the coaches during their press conferences before and after games. I never learned more than when I was watching Pep or Mourinho or Klopp speak for themselves instead of reading or listening to some reporter's interpretation of their words or interpretation of their tactics or interpretation of their playing styles. So if you're not already watching press conferences, I highly recommend that you start. I will warn you, though, that since I've started watching press conferences, I've also learned that coaches can be quite deceiving in those, especially here in America, where there is a league and a countrywide agenda that is being pushed. So what's wrong with American soccer media? Yes, I'm aware that is a loaded question, but you don't have to dig too deep to find the cracks. For starters, a significant portion of the incumbent American soccer media is owned or controlled directly or indirectly by MLS, USSF, or their affiliates. Therefore, the soccer media is practically curated by the establishment. And American soccer is an establishment that naturally doesn't want to be critically examined, particularly not at the foundational level. Hence, it neuters its media. How does it accomplish this? Well, it holds a monopoly over the ecosystem. Anyone who doesn't align with its foundational narrative, its founding culture, is in danger of losing access. And I've provided links to multiple cases of this happening here in American soccer. And those can be found on 343coaching.com. But this keeps the media in check. This monopoly thing, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And we will for sure talk about it in future episodes. But there are additional harmful problems that American soccer media suffers from. One in particular is that media members typically don't have strong soccer backgrounds. The bulk of their experience, personal and professional, is not in soccer. Therefore, when it comes to providing opinions or analysis, they don't really know the difference between what's good and what's not. This isn't meant to be a dig at them. It's just reality. The same reality that was brought to light in the New York Times article that most people seem to miss. The journalist was impressed by what he saw. The practitioner was disgusted. I'm not doubting that the journalist was knowledgeable when it came to soccer. But knowledge is one thing. Expertise is another level. Knowledge is something anyone can get. It doesn't require expertise. Knowledge is far more accessible. Knowledge can be Googled. Expertise cannot. For example, what is the population of Atlanta? Easy. Google it and you've acquired that knowledge. How do you make the dishes served at a restaurant? Easy. Google for the recipes. 
or interview the staff and you've got the knowledge. But actually making those dishes to the degree that they do or training someone to do so, that's totally different. That is expertise. And there are levels to that expertise from the staff cook to the chef to Gordon Ramsay. Further, if you aspire to become a cook, a chef, or Gordon, or train someone to become those things, who would you like to learn from? For more than a decade, a very knowledgeable guy became the self-proclaimed leading soccer journalist in America. But this guy had aspirations of covering basketball and only covered soccer in his spare time. He became enamored by the spectacle of soccer later in his life and was able to obtain enough knowledge about the sport in order to write about it. But again, knowledge and expertise are two completely different things. Sure, these non-soccer people might become knowledgeable enough to watch a game and write some opinions, but do they really know enough to provide proper player or team analysis? The answer is most certainly no. Think about what it was like for the MMA community when Stephen A. Smith was paired with Joe Rogan to cover UFC. The gap between the two wasn't just noticeable, it was cringeworthy. This hit a boiling point following the match between Conor McGregor and Donald Cerrone when Stephen A. Smith tried to lean on his entertainment gimmicks and Joe Rogan, a practitioner in the sport of martial arts, had a very different point of view. But there's a lot of currency in being a Stephen A. Smith. You just ain't ready, and that's how it looked tonight. Cowboy Cerrone just didn't look ready. This sport demands a different perspective. It's it's not the same thing as a ball going into a hoop. But here's my reality. We haven't learned a damn thing about Conor McGregor based off of this fight. We didn't learn anything about Conor. I'm like, the f- you didn't. Yeah. He just destroyed Cowboy in 40 yeah. seconds. Yeah, you learned something. You just don't yeah. know what you saw. The point here is that even when someone dedicates years to watching and covering the game, it cannot come close to those actually executing ideas on a soccer field. In other words, an actual practitioner instead of a reporter. And with that said, there are still levels to that, and a practitioner may never come close to reaching a significant degree of expertise, let alone deep expertise. So, given what the media here is allowed to cover, Coupled with what they know, what we typically see in American soccer in the news cycle are simple, non-impactful things like player transfer rumors, MLS homegrown player hype, or just straight-up reporting of the scores. We do get things like post-game player ratings or tactical analysis, but those must be taken with a grain of salt because who knows what they know? Remember our reporter friend from the New York Times article above? And when we do see analysis, it is often post hoc analysis that is a concoction of talking points designed to impress the viewer or the reader or to fit an agenda, but not necessarily is accurate. I mean, how the hell could it be accurate? As a coach with more than 15 years of experience and dozens of courses under my belt, I can tell you unequivocally that it is extremely difficult to watch a 90-minute game in person, and then provide authentic and thorough tactical analysis within minutes or even hours of the final whistle blowing. Watching a game once on TV? Forget about it. But 
After 10 p.m. Eastern kickoffs, we usually have a few thousand words from analysts by next daylight. Proper analysis takes even the best experts a ton of time. It's well known now that Marcelo Bielsa and his staff spend hundreds of hours analyzing opponents. Hundreds of hours. And these are practitioners at the top of the game, not reporters meeting content deadlines and media-centered objectives. Yeah, there are levels to this, folks. What we get here are videos or pictures containing circles and arrows coupled with analysis that describes what is happening and passed off as the coach's tactics when, in fact, it's just a natural part of play. For example, here's something that we see quite a bit in uh, analysis situations. The ball gets played across the back line from left to right, and players begin to gravitate towards the area where the ball is. The defensive mid shifts over, the opposite outside back starts to tuck in, the opposite winger slides. This is nothing special. The language I used made it sound pretty snazzy though, huh? This is how most American soccer is covered. Fancy words and abstract theories to explain very simple situations. But when it comes to analysis of the U.S. men's national team from the incumbent media, this is Greg Berhalter's positional play being deployed, or something of the sort. The breakdowns themselves are usually nothing spectacular either. What we typically see are isolated moments that are used to extrapolate something more grand. Tactics are not about one moment, though. Tactics are about patterns being consistently executed over time. That's why it takes someone like Bielsa hundreds of hours to do analysis. It takes time and expertise to see something that is, one, clearly not improvisation, and two, clearly what the players were instructed and trained to do. Like I've said multiple times now, there are levels to seeing and understanding this stuff. Just watching live games can only help you reach a certain level of understanding. Only watching games on TV also limits you. And consuming only American soccer and its media, well, that limits you even further. One last thing to consider. When it comes to levels, we must understand that there are levels associated with all the different roles in football, be it club executives, coaches, players, administrators, fans, advisors, and the one we focus the most on today, the media. But without having the requisite experience in the sport that is necessary in order to discern all of these things, it can be hard to tell where one might fall on the spectrum. So, think about it. Is your favorite source of American soccer information more like the New York Times reporter? Or the IX youth director? Or is it more like something in between? I suppose that's up to you to decide. But investing time in this thought experiment could potentially help you level up. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back in a moment to answer your questions from last week's episode. But first, a message about our player masterclass. Our flagship program helps coaches and trainers discern what is good for their teams and for their players. But now we've created a program for parents because parents, you are personal trainers too. 
Yep, that's right. And in order to properly mentor your player, you need to know what's good and what's not. Just like coaches, you and your player are flooded with thousands of training videos on YouTube and Instagram. But most of them are a waste of time because they aren't relevant. They don't translate to the real game. And figuring out what does and what doesn't and why is just flat out difficult, especially if you don't have a background in soccer to lean on. So we've taken Brian Kleiben's more than 20 years of experience working with teams and individual players from U9 to U19 and extracted valuable lessons that can help you navigate the minefield that is American youth soccer. But this isn't just about drills. That's only a small fraction of it. And to be honest, you can get drills anywhere. What you're getting with the 343 Masterclass are the cultural lessons and an education in philosophy that other trainers and courses don't offer. It's these elements that can help you understand the landscape, read the game on and off the field, and translate everything into real development for your player. Right now, you can get on the list for the 343 Masterclass. We are currently rolling it out little by little to small groups. To reserve your spot, go to 343masterclass.com. All right, we are back to answer your questions from previous episodes. And this week's question comes from Christian Flores. And Christian asks, how much of grind culture contributes to injuries? Do we respect biology when we push too much and not emphasize the recovery? And to answer that question, here is 343's founder, Gary Kleiben. Chris, thank you so much for the question. Uh, every question is a good question because... You know, it's a point of discussion, and this one made me think quite a bit. So I'm going to offer you what went through my mind and what I prepared here for you. So regarding grind culture and its contribution to injuries, the first thing that came to mind, and I firmly believe, as as one of these episodes, you know, tried to illuminate, is that I don't think American soccer has a grind culture at all. Uh, so almost all on its face, you know, my reaction to your question was mm, not a good question. But but let me expand a bit. Um, we have a soft culture. And that said, you know, we can still talk about special cases. For instance, if a player goes down in training, it's important to have good experience and some protocol to make decisions on whether a player should, quote unquote, walk it off or to call it a day. You know, hey. Timmy, Johnny, uh, Michelle, you know, you know, go off to the side and, you know, relax. We'll revisit this tomorrow or the following week, or let's see if you have to go to the doctor or anything of that nature. So you have the two possibilities, but it's good to have some sort of protocol in place as to how you're going to react. Another, for instance, can be what's called load management. Um, here in the United States, there's a lot of tournaments that youth teams go to where teams could be playing up to five matches in three days. You know, on the face of it, that sounds pretty absurd. It's a huge load in such a compressed amount of time. But even here, you know, I could still make a case or an argument um, that goes in the other direction. I mean, I know around the world uh, and from my own youth, Players are playing countless hours per day or per day on repeated days without any issue. Uh, that doesn't mean that everybody's not going to have an issue. But uh, I know that 
huge loads uh, occur when you're a young kid growing up uh, and you're out in the street constantly playing. Of course, there's anecdotes and injuries that happen due to loads being too high and not well managed. But that said, you know, load as correlated with injuries across all ages and competitive levels isn't an exact science. So, I mean, this isn't physics or mathematics or optics where there's reproducible and precise predictive power. Those are exact sciences. There is no rigorous, reproducible, precise predictive power like in the disciplines I just mentioned when it comes to disciplines that investigate your question, Chris, namely a correlation between grind culture, loads, and injuries to players. There's just way too many variables involved. For example, there are humans who can carry two, three, five times the load of other humans, depending on a large set of factors, which may range from genetics to fitness levels at a particular moment, to things we may not even be aware of, uh, things that we're not even maybe even measuring. Again, the distribution of humans and their susceptibility is not an exact science. So I would say beware of anyone who says they know what's really going on in this space. I'm going to go a little bit further. Consider the following. There's billion, billion with a B, billion dollar professional clubs with individual players worth tens of millions of dollars that have varying degrees of load management philosophies and protocols. Again, these clubs have tens of millions of dollars invested in player assets and they defer in how they manage loads. Again, more evidence that this is not an exact science. Protocols that are driven by physicians and sports science teams at the club and they get things wrong at times as well. But bringing it back home to what your question is again, Chris, so what hope do coaches working on their own at American youth clubs have if billion dollar clubs um, have difficulty really pinning this question down? I say this again to emphasize we must be cautious in thinking we know what is right and wrong and who we're listening to on such topics. But that's not to say we shouldn't be vigilant regarding this topic. Not at all. I just think the way to proceed here is to be conscientious of all these things, continue informing oneself, and hopefully from good sources, and if possible, establish some agreed upon flexible protocol regarding your players and your teams. Have this discussion with your families, have this discussion with your club, and maybe converge on some agreed upon way of moving forward. So listen, man. Great question. I don't have a direct answer for you, um, but hopefully I, I don't know, gave you a little bit of insight as to my thinking process and a little bit of my experience. Hit me up, man. Thanks again. And, you know, have a great evening and day. Thank you for listening. 
Do you have a question about the topic that we covered in this episode? If so, we'd love to hear from you and we will be answering some of your questions at the end of next week's episode. Submit your questions on Twitter or head to 343coaching.com to leave your question in the comment section. Make sure that you are subscribed to 343FM on your favorite podcasting app. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and many more platforms. And if you're feeling super generous, we'd love it if you dropped us a five-star rating or a review. And don't forget that you can find our entire library of podcast episodes, over 200 written articles, and our online courses that help accelerate the development of coaches and players using methods that have been proven to work here in the United States. Once again, all of that can be found at 343coaching.com. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next time here on the 343 Podcast. Podcast.